Good morning. Would you all please stand as we read God's word? The passage this morning is 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 9. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You may be seated. I dropped a heavy piece of my grill on my foot yesterday, and so I may need to sit at some point. So that's why I'm bringing that up. Uh, and it also can provide a nice place to hold my water bottle. So let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We need to hear from you. Would you please speak to us this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, welcome. Uh, I didn't get a chance to welcome you earlier. If you're here for the first time or second time, we're glad to have you here. We're going through a series this Advent where we're looking at Jesus. Christmas is when we celebrate Jesus and his birth. And so what we want to do is look at what the thi- some of the things that Scripture teaches us about what Jesus did when he became a human. Uh, and the way we're going to do that is look at a series of passages that talk about Jesus becoming something for us. Last week, we looked at Jesus becoming sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5. Today, we're looking at Jesus becoming poor for us uh, in 2 Corinthians 8. Next week, we're going to be looking at Jesus becoming a servant for us in Philippians 2. Uh, and then there'll be a couple of others, Jesus becoming the wisdom of God for us and Jesus becoming heir of all things for us. Uh, and in each of these what we're doing is we're trying to see uh, what is it about the, the, the gospel, this good news of who Jesus is and what he has done that is so beautiful and compelling for us. And the way we're going to do that, I did this last week, and, and it really helped me in framing the sermon, so I'm going to do it again this week. Uh, we're going to be using the grid of Jesus for us, Jesus in us, and Jesus through us as we work our way through the sermon. And what we'll see is that in this passage, just like last week, uh, Paul is speaking about the work of Jesus for us and the, and the transition, transformation that it does in us in such a way that then something happens through us as Jesus uh, serves, uh, um, serves the world. Now, let me give you some context. I didn't do this last week because it wasn't as important, but this week it's really important for us to have some context about what's happening. So Paul writes the letter of 2 Corinthians during his second missionary journey. So if you don't know, in the book of Acts, we have uh, the, the large part of Paul's ministry, and Paul takes three different missionary trips around the Mediterranean world. And during the second missionary journey, Paul writes a number of letters. He writes 1 Corinthians, he writes 2 Corinthians, 
and he writes uh, the book of Romans. And in all three of those letters, Paul talks about a collection that he is taking for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, In fact, it seems that this was probably one of the preoccupations of the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey, so much so that um, he says at the end of the book of Romans, he's the letter that he sends to the Romans, he says to them, I really want to come to Rome because he had plans to stop in Rome and then go on to Spain. But he says, before I can go to Rome, I first have to go back to Jerusalem. So that's the opposite direction uh, in order to deliver these, this collection. Now, what we don't know is why the collection was necessary. We don't know if it was a famine. We don't know if it was because of the persecution that was beginning to to, to take place more and more uh, during this time, or if it was just that the needs of the church were that significant. We don't know what the circumstances were, but we know that this collection was really, really, really important to Paul. And the Corinthians had initially signed up. They said, Paul, we're in. We're a part of this, we're with you, but then something happened and they weren't as enthusiastic as time went on. And so by the time that Paul writes the second letter to the Corinthians, he is showing them the example of the churches in Macedonia in order to compel, not to compel them, but in order to encourage them about the work of the gospel in their life. Uh, So what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Jesus was made poor for us. We're going to see how Jesus creates in us the riches of God's grace. And then we're going to see how Jesus blesses the world through us by our generosity. And, And here's the central point. The central point is that Jesus was born into poverty for us so that we could experience the riches of God's grace, which overflow into generosity. That's the... If you don't remember anything else, remember that, all right? So verse 9, this is really the key, key passage, the key verse for our sermon this morning. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, yet, that, um, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So how is Jesus rich? Uh, John Murray is a theologian that I've go to from time to time to help me think about things. Uh, And this is what he says in a sermon he preached on this passage. He says, the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ are the riches of God himself. There are no riches that can exceed. Really simply, the reason that Jesus was rich is because of his relationship with the Father and with the Spirit. There's nothing, there's no greater wealth. It wasn't about money. It wasn't about owning everything, although he has control of everything because he's the creator of everything. But that's not where his riches lay. His riches lay in the relationship that he had as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So then the question is, how does Jesus become poor? If his riches are the riches of who he is as the second person of the Trinity, his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, how does he become poor? Does he become poor by setting aside his deity? The answer is no. Jesus does not become poor by subtraction. Jesus becomes poor by addition. John Murray goes on to say this, when the Son of Man became poor, it was not by giving up his godhood. When he became man, he did not cease to be rich. 
He did not become poor by ceasing to be what he was. He became poor by becoming what he was not. In other words, he added humanity to his deity. That's how Jesus becomes poor. So what does that look like? Well, uh, what we're going to see is that it looks in two ways. One way is that Jesus is born into material poverty. And then secondly, we see that Jesus experiences spiritual poverty. How is Jesus born into material poverty? Uh, how many of you have nativities at home right now? Yes, we have two nativities. We've got this like really nice uh, Fontanini nativity that my wife, uh, my wife brought into the marriage. And it's, uh, it's beautiful and lovely and serene. And we have a Playmobil nativity, uh, which the kids play with. Actually, they play with both. So now, if, if you have a nativity, right, you, you've probably got a camel, a cow, some sheep. Um, remember the song, uh, The Friendly Beasts? And the, the, the dove and all these things, right? And so you have these pictures of Christmas. And it's so quiet and so beautiful and so still. We even sing this song, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright. Jesus doesn't even cry. It's a beautiful song. It's not true, <laughs> right? The animals were noisy. They smelled. And let's just be honest, like the, the birth of a child in this time in, in our history was a perilous thing. Women died. Children died in childbirth. This was not the sweet, serene moment. And, and Mary gives birth with animals around her. Why? I would submit to you that, I mean, we can't prove this, right? But if they had had financial means, they would have been able to find a place to stay. But here are this young man and this young woman who don't have financial means, and they're reduced to having to give birth to their first child, the king of heaven and earth, whom they know who he is, right? Uh, and put him in the trough where the animals eat. So Jesus is born into poverty. Jesus grows up in poverty. When, when Joseph and Mary in Luke chapter 2, Joseph and Mary go to the temple in order to bring offerings for purification after Mary had given birth to Jesus. Do you, do you remember what they bring? They bring two doves. That was the offering that the book of Leviticus outlined for those who were poor. Those who were poor and didn't have financial means were allowed, instead of bringing a lamb, they were allowed as a concession to their poverty to bring two doves. Jesus grows up in poverty. At some point, Joseph goes out of the picture. Uh, we presume that he dies. Uh, we don't know when in the process, but, but at some point, this is a single parent home that we're talking about. And if Jesus is young when this happens, you can think of all of the implications sociologically, economically for the family during this time. Jesus as an adult says foxes have nests. I'm sorry, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, referring to himself, doesn't have a place to sleep. He says that in Luke chapter nine. So Jesus is born into a human condition and he is poor. He's so poor, in fact, that uh, he has to borrow somebody else's tomb when he's buried. But that's not the only way that Jesus is poor. Jesus also becomes poor in spirit. And that happens when he's crucified on the cross. And that's really what Paul is talking about. Paul's not just talking about his material poverty. Paul is talking about Jesus becoming poor by dying on the cross. Why? How was Jesus rich? His relationship with 
the Father and the, and the Spirit, right? So on the cross, what happens? Now, he, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? But, but think back to his life. At his baptism, the voice of God says, this is my son, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. When he goes into the wilderness, the Spirit goes with him into the wilderness as he's being tempted. We have record after record of Jesus spending evenings in prayer and deep fellowship with his Father. At the mountain of transfiguration, uh, God, the Father, tears the, or not tears, but pulls back the veil of Jesus' humanity so that Peter, James, and John are able to see Jesus in his divine glory. And he says, this is my son, listen to him. This is Jesus' experience, right? He doesn't give up being rich when he, ha- when he adds on to himself his humanity. And then there's that moment on the cross where he, he looks for the Father, he looks for the Spirit, and what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the poverty that Jesus takes for us, his death on the cross. Now, if that's what Jesus does for us, what is the work that Jesus do? What is the, what is the work that Jesus does in us? He creates in us the riches of God's grace. Verse 9 again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, his relationship with the Father and the Spirit, yet for our sakes he becomes poor, the addition of his humanity so that we through his, through his riches, so that by his poverty, we might become rich. Now, there's a, there's a presupposition here, right? And the presupposition is that you and I are experiencing poverty. Because let's face it, if, if we're already rich, then this is not really good news. This is just, okay, well, great. More riches, yay, right? The good news is that Jesus comes here to earth He takes on material poverty. He takes on the cross in order for us to have something we don't have. There is a longing that we all have. We all feel it in different ways, whether you are a person of faith or not. There is a longing that we all have, and that longing can look in a variety of different ways. For some of us, that longing is expressed as we see the the brokenness of this world, uh, and we see uh, how, how, um, how broken and how evil and how sinful uh, and how wicked things are. For some of us, we, and so in that longing, we're like, Lord, you know, um, we want to we write that in some way, shape, or form, whether we're a person of faith or not. For some of us, that longing is a longing that is a longing of wanting to be connected to some larger purpose than ourselves. And what that longing, however that longing gets expressed in us, that longing is tapping into what Scripture calls poverty of spirit. And poverty of spirit, when when it's aligned to Jesus, when it's aligned to God, it's a poverty that says, these longings that I have, these desires, these things that I'm hoping for, can only be met by God. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says this at the beginning of uh, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's something about recognizing 
our, that our longing can only be met in Jesus that brings great fulfillment as we look to Jesus. Now, what happens is that as we look to Jesus, that he gives, he brings to us the riches of God's grace. This is Ephesians chapter one. He says, in him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance which, with the riches of God's grace. When we, in the poverty of our spirit, look to God, look to Jesus, and see that he was made poor for us, when we see what happens on the cross and we say, he did that for me, and we put our faith in him, the result of that is that we then begin to experience the riches of God's grace. Now, what are those riches? How is Jesus rich? His relationship with who? Father and Spirit. And so doesn't it stand to reason that when Jesus bestows upon us the riches that he had, what are those riches? It's not, it's not material wealth. It's the riches of the relationship that he has with the Father and the Spirit, right? We get brought in union with Jesus, and all of a sudden now we can call the king of heaven and earth, Yahweh, we can call him father. We can call Jesus brother. We, we can rely and trust that the Holy Spirit is with us. That's the riches of the gospel. The riches of the gospel is the riches that the God of heaven and earth becomes our friend, our father, our comforter, our advocate. So, What's happening in the story, in this particular passage, is that the church in Corinth said, hey, we're in. We're going to do this offering. We're going to be part of it. And then something happens, and they back out. They get cold feet. They, they just, it doesn't, it's not a priority. It's not entirely clear what it is that happened. There were some relational tensions that they were experiencing with Paul at this particular time. Uh, and Paul says, I want you to remember what Jesus has done for you. I want you to see how the, the gospel, this good news of Jesus becoming poor for you, how this worked out over in Macedonia in the churches in that region of Europe, right? And see what they did out of extreme poverty and a severe trial. They, out of their own material poverty, they richly gave. They weren't wealthy. They were suffering themselves. And they said, Paul, we are in. And Paul is pointing them to the example of the church in Macedonia. He's pointing the church in Corinth to the example of the church in Macedonia, not to, not to bring shame on them, not to bring guilt on them, but to show them the power of the good news. Scripture is really balanced. If you, if you take Scripture as a whole, it really is very balanced in its uh, understanding of, of wealth, of material wealth. Uh, and probably no passage of Scripture better encapsulates the totality of, of the teaching of money then Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 to 9. Uh, listen to this proverb. Two things I ask of you. This is the, the, the writer of the proverb speaking to God. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. There's a sense of urgency in this. What's the first thing? Keep falsehood and lies far from me. What's the second thing? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise... I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or 
I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. There's this very balanced teaching that you see when you take the totality of Scripture. But there does seem to be this theme that pops up that it is often, not always, but it is often those who experience material poverty that are more tuned into their spiritual poverty. Uh, and, I, and I was reminded of this this past week as Kate was reading to me something that she found online. So uh, do y'all know who Sojourner Truth is? Sojourner Truth, is that name ringing a bell? So, so for those of you that don't know, Sojourner Truth was born late um, 1800s. Uh, she was a slave. Uh, she was born to a slave. Her mom's name was Elizabeth Bomfrey. Sojourner Truth's birth name was Isabel Bomfrey. Uh, and she was an African-American woman who was an abolitionist. Uh, she was a Christian. She was, a, she was a, an evangelist. And she was also very involved in the women's rights movement. And so in her autobiography, she's retelling uh, the, the way that her mom discipled her as a young child. Why don't you listen to this? And, and, and keep in mind that Elizabeth Bomfrey, Sojourner Truth's mom, was herself a slave and that she had, uh, we're not sure, between 10 and 12 children, all of whom were sold into slavery, okay? In the evening, when her mother's work was done, she would get down under the sparkling vault of heaven and calling her children to her, would talk to them of the only being, and the word being is capitalized, that could effectually aid or protect them. My children, there is a God who hears you and sees you. A God, mama? Where does he live? Asked the children. He lives in the sky, she replied. And when you are beaten or cruelly treated or fall into any trouble, you must ask help of him and he will always hear you and help you. She taught them to kneel and say the Lord's prayer. She entreated them to refrain from lying and stealing. Incidentally, a little side note, Proverbs 30 verses seven and nine, two things I ask, keep lies away from me. Give me neither poverty nor your riches because I don't want to steal She'd tell them to refrain from lying and stealing and strive to obey your masters. Thus, in her humble way, did she endeavor to show them their heavenly father as the only being who could protect them in their perilous condition. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's this picture of the woman, of this woman who is in the most severe kind of oppression that we, that we can imagine. And she is clinging to her faith. And not only is she clinging to her faith, but she is instructing her children, whom will be sold into slavery, to hold fast to their God. Jesus becomes poor for us so that in the most severe of trials, we can hold on to him. Jesus becomes for, for us, not by, addition, not, not by subtraction, but by addition, not by giving up his deity, but by taking on humanity. He does that so he can create the riches of God's grace in us, right? And the riches of God's grace is we get God himself, we get the Father, we get the Son, we get the Spirit, we get this relationship with him, that is the riches of the gospel, the riches of the good news working in us. And then finally, we see that through us, Jesus works through us to show generosity to the world. 
verses 3 to 5. I testify that, so this is him talking to the church in Corinth about the church in Macedonia. I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own, and they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints, and they did not as and they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So the, the central point I'm trying to drive home is this. Jesus becomes poor for us by taking on our humanity so that we could experience the riches of God's grace by receiving the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And then when that transaction happens, it bubbles over into generosity. Radical, sacrificial, joyful generosity. And so that's the logic that Paul is is doing here. He's not, he says, I'm not trying to compel you to do this. He's not, he's not obligating them. He's not compelling them. He's not saying shame on you because you said you were going to do this and you didn't. There's none of that. What he is doing is he's repeatedly saying, remember what Jesus has done for you. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian at Yale, and years ago he wrote this book, uh, and he has this great, uh, great line about the spirit of generosity in the church. This is what he says. He says, a Santa Claus God, appropriate for Christmas, a Santa Claus God gives simply so we can have and enjoy things. The true God gives so we can become joyful givers and not just self-absorbed receivers. The God, God the giver, has made us to be givers. Let me say that again. A Santa Claus God gives simply so that we can have joy and receive things. The true God gives so that we can become joyful givers. Jesus is calling us in this passage to a generosity that's not born out of compulsion. It's not born out of obligation. It's not born out of shame or guilt. It's the overflow of what Jesus has done in our hearts. Now, what were to happen if the church in the United States were to, were to, to, to grab hold of this? So a number of years ago, uh, a pastor by the name of Scott Sauls wrote a book called Jesus Outside the Lines. Uh, and in it, I read it a number of years ago, and in it, he makes reference to the study that was done. This is back in 2013. I know there's been some more recent studies done on this, but I didn't have, um, I didn't want to buy them to get access to them. So so I'm using an older study. But the point holds. Uh, This study from 2013 says this. Um, It was from Relevant Magazine. 10 to to 25% of the typical American Christian congregation tithes. Uh, And so now what's a tithe? Because maybe you don't even know what that word means, right? So tithe is this biblical concept that we we give back to the Lord a certain portion of what he has given to us. And so the, the rule of thumb that we said is the tithe was 10%. But the, the underlying theological principle is actually born out of 2 Corinthians 8, uh, that it is sacrificial and joyful giving. For some of us, that might not be 10%. For some of us, it might be 10%. For some of us, it might be more than 10%. 
Uh, but the premise is that we are sacrificially and joyfully giving back to the Lord a portion of what he has given to us. And this is what he says. He says, if the remaining, so, so the study said that uh, 10 to 25% of American Christians tithe. If the remaining 75 to 90% of Christians began to tithe regularly, listen, I'm, I'll read this. The global, hunger star, the global hunger, starvation, and death from preventable diseases would be relieved within five years. Additionally, illiteracy could be eliminated. The world's water and sanitation issues could be solved. All overseas mission, overseas mission works could be fully funded and over $100 billion per year would be left over for additional ministry. Even if that's half true, that's mind-boggling. Now, what's the response? Oh, are you guilting me? Is there shame? We're not doing this? No, because that's not the good news, right? Jesus took our shame. Jesus became poor for us so that we through his poverty might experience the riches of God's grace. So the response is not, oh, I feel bad, I'm ashamed, I'm gonna give out of compulsion, I'm gonna give out of obligation. No, the response is to hold on to Jesus. What did the, what did the church in Macedonia do? They gave themselves first to the Lord. And in giving themselves to the Lord, what bubbled over was a generosity of spirit that was sacrificial and joyful. Scott Sauls goes on to say, the tithe reminds us that God is going to meet. Listen, here's the reality. Like our, let me stop. The, we are constantly being discipled by our culture to view money a certain way. It is, it is constant. What are the themes? Money will solve your problems. Work harder, get more money. Get a lot of money so you can retire early. If only you had money, then you could take such and such trip. You can have such and such house. You could live such and such lifestyle. And because you can't have those things, woe to you who are poor. And, and we buy that. Our children buy that. Especially if we're not like discipling them to not buy those narratives. And that ends up affecting us as the church. It ends up weakening us as the church. And so the tithe reminds us that God is going to meet our needs. The tithe reminds us that God is going to meet 100% of our needs as we return 10% of our regular income back to him. The tithe reminds us that God is our provider, that he is sufficient, to meet our needs, and that he, not money, is the ultimate answer to our soul, soul thirst for safety and validation. Now, I recognize that I'm saying this on the same Sunday that we, we put out this uh, David's Harp uh, one family living room offering. Uh, and, and that really is was not planned by either Chad or I. Chad did not know what I was preaching on, and I only made the connection yesterday, or Friday morning, that this was happening. Um, now, let me just say, like, I think we can do that. I want us to do that. I hope, I hope we crush that goal, right? I'm not preaching the sermon 
in order to get you to give for the one family living room as much as I would love for you to do that, right? We need to be reminded of a biblical ethic of money because if we're not reminded of a biblical ethic of money, we are going to be discipled to view our money a certain way. That is not debatable. So I'd just rather that you be discipled by the church as opposed to uh, popular media. Now, all right, I'm going, I'm going along here. So, so what is it to do? What does this look like for us, right? Beyond the year-end gift, the generosity of spirit that God works in us is such that we give ourselves first to him, and out of the overflow of what he has done for us, we give generously with our money. We give to the church. We give to other valuable kingdom causes. We give to things that maybe aren't even related to the church at all, but, but it's this overflow of generosity that is born not out of guilt, not out of compulsion, not out of shame, but the reality that Jesus became poor for us. And when God's people bubble over with generosity, uh, they're blessed. So I got it. I want to stop, but I got to share this one story. Um, because it, there's this one moment in time where as I was thinking about it this morning, um, have you ever experienced the generosity of another person? One story, I was in Cuba, and we had brought shoes to this pastor and his kids, um, and he was so thankful that uh, he invited us over to his house to feed us. Now, you have to understand, it's not like they can just go to the grocery store and buy some meat. Uh, he had to go and work the system uh, and, and probably spent more than he had in order to show gratitude for the simple shoes that we brought him. And that happened to me time and time and time again when I was in Cuba, to the point that whenever I think of Cuba, I think of brothers and sisters who have shown me such generosity that I can never repay. That's the kind of life that Harbor can have in this city, right? Where, where the generosity that flows out from here could be such that the city would say, man, that, that is a very generous group of people. And that's, that's the gospel, right? And it's not because we want, oh, look at Harbor. No, Christ became poor for us so that we through his poverty might experience the riches of God's grace. And when that happens, it can't help but bubble over into generosity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your, um, your incredible love. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you were willing to become poor for us by adding a human nature and that you, in your poverty, died on the cross so that we could experience the riches of God's grace. Lord, would you please allow us this morning, first and foremost, to give ourselves to you, as the church in Macedonia did, that our hearts would be uh, committed to you for what you have done for us. And then from there, Lord, uh, that it would bubble over into a generosity that, can only be explained because Jesus was made poor for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.